Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to remind you that my short story is available for free at johntilton.com. If you sign up for my newsletter, I'll send you both the ebook and audiobook of Doomed Dune. In this middle grade adventure, a girl named Melina travels to a forbidden landmark guarded by tyrannical robots, but her life turns upside down when she discovers the true reason it's off limits. Discover Doom Doom Secret by heading over to johntilton.com. That's J-O-N-T-I-L-T-O-N.com. Thanks again, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to Cause of Craft. I'm your host, John Tilton. Why do we create? Where do our ideas come from? What does our craft say about us? These are the ideas we explore here on the show. Each episode, I interview a different guest, from writers and painters to musicians and filmmakers. Together, we investigate the creative process and the reasons behind why we create. Today's guest, Leonard Robinson, has had quite the career in the animation industry. He's worked on projects like the Lord of the Rings animated film, the Tigger movie, the Fox and the Hound, the Black Cauldron, the Simpsons, and more. He's even directed episodes of Animaniacs, Tasmania, and The Proud Family. And while he's winding down parts of his career, he's still very active in teaching and in his own personal animation projects. That got us talking about if creatives really ever truly retire. We also discuss what he likes about storyboarding, the leadership skills needed to be a good director, and what it's like to work on such legendary projects. I think you're going to learn a lot from his experience, and if you do, I hope you'll share this episode with a friend. This really does help the show grow, and I appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the show, Leonard. It's great to talk with you. Thank you. Glad to be here. So for anyone who explores your IMD page, they're going to see a whole wide variety of roles that you've uh, filled in countless animation projects. Can you describe some of what those roles were? And do you have a favorite of those roles that you like to fill? Well, when I came into the business, it was the early, uh, well, actually it was the mid to late 1970s when I came to Los Angeles to work as an animator. And that was my original interest was in animation. And so I spent most of those first somewhere between three and five and six years of learning to be an animator and doing that particular kind of work, mostly feature animation work. And animation has always been my favorite thing to do, but I like telling stories. And so after a little while, I eventually got into doing storyboarding and I actually found storyboarding to be in some ways more satisfying because I found myself more interested in telling a visual story and at the same time using my animation abilities to work in the storyboard because I found that, you know, if you can tell a good story visually and you can create a sense of animation in the storyboard, it's a really good way to communicate to the animators what you want to do in the story. So I ended up doing storyboards fairly early on, but it was a, it was a pretty complex thing to learn making that jump from animation to storyboarding was significant. It took a quite a bit of doing for me to understand writing and screenwriting and visual storytelling. It was, it was a very different thing, but it was great. And I would say probably the storyboarding was more interesting to me, even though animation is still probably my, always going to be my first love. And was that a lot of learning on the job or did you take some courses? How did you go about making that switch of some of the roles to to doing the storyboards? Well, everything was on the job. When I came out here, I was in my, my early 20s. I was 21. And um, everything I, I did as far as learning was within the studios. Back then, the studios were run by artists. 
they would look at your work, they could see your potential. And even though you might not have had any experience, they could tell just from your work and your, your drawing ability, your draftsmanship and your portfolio, that you're a stable enough artist that they could teach you all the things you didn't know. And back then you had a lot of the uh, veteran animators and veteran story artists and veteran directors very open about teaching you. I mean, it was really great. You know, they, they were very, very good about passing that knowledge on. So yeah, all of my training came from actually on the job training. I didn't have to go to school or anything. You know, I was all working within a studio. Every studio, of course, had its own, had their own style. And obviously, I wanted to go to Disney first. And Disney was really the first studio I went to where I actually got training. My very first job was with Ralph Bakshi. That was how I got in the business. I started to work for him. He was the one that actually brought me out here. My first job was uh, I was an animator on The Lord of the Rings. And so my initial training was at that studio. And there were a lot of Disney, ex-Disney animators there. There were a lot of ex-MGM animators there. There were people all over the business that were working for him. And so I got a nice, broad spectrum of artists that I could learn from. Uh, I remember Irv Spence, who was uh, one of the great MGM animators who worked on Tom and Jerry, was there. So, I mean, I was just around all of these really talented artists. So it couldn't, I couldn't help but to pick that up. And then, you know, after I left Bakshi, I went to work for Disney. And that was really where I got my real basic training as far as being an animator, uh, you know, and that that whole thing. Now, you talk about how they could see that you had some sort of talent when you're coming into it. So uh, were you just drawing a lot before all of this? And how did you develop those skills if you weren't having the professional training before? How did you were you just kind of naturally drawn to drawing in the first place? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a God-given talent, no question. I mean, I, I'd been drawing since I was a little kid. I was going to grad, to um, Georgia State University training to be uh, an, an illustrator. I thought I would be a children's book illustrator. I really wanted to do animation uh, ever since I'd seen uh, from a child, uh, you know, I'd seen Disney cartoons, feature cartoons, and I was always impressed by by them. I knew those were drawings, you know, and I, I thought that's something that I'd like to do someday. Uh, but I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. There was no animation schools there at the time. So I I read books on the subject and I was interested, but I didn't, you know, since there was no training that I could get, I thought, well, I'll just go to art school. Uh, you know, I did go to art school. In fact, my, my parents, you know, encouraged me you know, because they saw my artistic ability very early on. And so they were always encouraging me. I mean, I basically went to school and I went through, you know, grade school, high school, all that, and to college. And uh, when I got to college, I, and I decided illustration was maybe the closest that I would get to being, you know, the kind of artist I wanted to be. And so I got real good basic training in design and, and, and draw, draftsmanship, you know, drawing, figure drawing, all that type of thing design classes and everything. So I, I took all the basic fine arts classes that I needed to take. So I was pretty well versed. And because of my skills already, you know, I just sharpened them in, in university and got pretty good. So by the time Ralph Bakshi met me, I, I was a pretty, pretty decent artist, I guess. Uh, evidently, I was decent enough that he hired me. <laughs> if he saw my work and saw that uh, what I could do. The way I met him was he... Um, had just finished a film called Wizards, and he was going around 
promoting it. And I got wind of it in, that that he was going to be in Atlanta uh, nearby uh, where I lived. And so I thought, well, I'll go see if I can see him. Maybe I can ask him how I could get into the animation business. So I thought, well, I'll bring my portfolio. I'll ask him some questions, you know, if he has a moment. And I was fortunate enough to be able to get his attention and show him my work, just thinking, you know, he'll just tell me, you know, if I'm any good or if I could do it. And he ter- turns out he, he liked what he saw and he hired me on the spot and basically started my career, flew me out here. And that's how I got started. So, I mean, but I had no animation training. So I basically I had to kind of learn but he took a chance on me. He let me, you know, come into a studio and and you know, really just basically gave me a gave me a shot. And wow, so your first project is this Lord of the Rings animated film. It, it, that's the one he hired you for? Right. Yeah. It cuz from my understanding that was a pretty groundbreaking film in animation as well. Is is that right? Yeah, it was. I mean, they they hadn't no one had done um a film version of Tolkien's story. Yeah, I just kind of hit the ground running and they were very, you know, the people were very um, helpful. You know, they definitely showed, they showed me the ropes and they were really patient. I I found out that back then it was just very different how uh, new artists were brought in. It was very common for studios to hire people that they felt had the potential to be, you know, to work in the business and they would train them and it was on the job training. So it was great. So as you're getting this on the job training for a ground, what's a groundbreaking film and animation it are you aware that they're breaking ground or are you just thinking this is the way they do things um yeah i just thought well this is the way they do things i didn't (laughs) you know i (laughs) i mean i didn't know it i mean this was my first time coming out to hollywood you know i've never been to hollywood before here i am fresh out of school um so yeah i didn't know i mean i I don't think anyone well i mean i believe ralph bakshi felt that the subject matter was obviously popular enough that people it was obviously going to do well which it did. But, you know, as far as my view of it, I, I was pretty much a, an absolute novice. <laughs> I had no idea that it was going to be this huge thing, you know. So that was kind of neat. And now Lord of the Rings being attached to it, I feel like that kind of gives you an impression that it's going to be a big deal. But with something like Animaniacs that, of course, now is a huge deal, but at the time, no one knew what that was. Right. I guess do you have a sense that something while you're working on the project is going to be really popular or is that often a surprise later on? You know, the odd thing about it is every project that I've worked on and and some of them have been obviously have turned into really big, big deals. I can honestly say that when I started on those projects, I didn't have a clue that it would become as big as it did. Like Animaniacs, I mean, I I could tell it was going to be fun. You know, I had worked on Tiny Toons prior to that uh, and I as an independent contractor. And that was prior to me coming to work as a director at Warner Brothers. But to me, Tiny Toons was the big deal. You know, when Animaniacs came to be, it was being created. I was there while that was happening, while it was being developed. I was director on the Tasmania series, which was also new. I was very excited about Tasmania because nothing had been done with the Tasmanian Devil character as a show. So I thought that was going to be like, a wow, this is going to be a big deal, you know. Uh, I guess it was. Actually, it kind of was. But, uh, of course, Animaniacs was much bigger. And I think that might have been probably because of Spielberg and, you know, the connections to it were bigger. You don't really, I mean, I don't know, for the most part, I think when you come in on a project, and I, I can't speak for everybody, obviously, but I think most of us don't necessarily 
no or you know i mean i guess the way you would probably think something was going to be big would be based on the celebrities connected to it i've worked on a few projects where the celebrities that were connected to it were big deals so sometimes that made you think like okay this could be pretty big you know because spielberg was involved in the producing of animaniacs i definitely felt like well this probably is going to be kind of a big deal i would think but I, but I don't think it, I thought that it was going to be as big as it turned out to be. So, And was this the first project that you were directing episodes on? Uh, well, Tasmania was the very first directing job I got. Um, yeah, but, I, but it was at Warner Brothers also. And so what happened was uh, after I directed on, ta- on the first, I think we did two seasons of Tasmania, I believe, I was recommended to be a director on Animaniacs. So... Um, that worked out great. I mean, they obviously liked my work on Tasmania, and that was why I got to direct on Animaniacs. And when you're directing something, specifically in animation, there's so many people who work on these things. Are you needing to connect with every individual person on that, or are there kind of like different? Is there almost like a director on specifically maybe the animation aspects in your? they're reporting to you or something like that. How, how does all that communication work behind the scenes? Well, um, the animation done for TV series, for animated TV series, is done in two different places. We have pre-production, which is the um, script, the storyboard, um, the planning for the character design, uh, background design, layout design, voice recording, Everything that comes prior to animation, color design, color styling, all that, that's all done here. And then it's sent to wherever it's going to be animated. And since 90% of the animation that has been done for animated shows is done somewhere else, it's outsourced usually to Japan or Korea or the Philippines or wherever it's going to be animated, it goes there. They get all of our materials, which is allows them, helps them to do their work. And they do have people over there that are supervising what's going on. So they'll have overseas directors, but basically they're following everything that we've already done. That's why we do all our pre-production here, and then it goes overseas. So then it's all that's all done, and then it comes back. Then we edit it and do our final mixing and all that, and then, then you have your final show. But uh, do I speak with all my artists? Absolutely. Each of the directors on Animaniacs, I believe there were, I want to say there were... I want to say six or eight directors. I forget how many of us there were. But uh, each of us had a a crew. And uh, on our crew, we'd have story artists, we'd have layout artists, we'd have background painters, X sheet timers. Of course, we worked with all the voice talent. We go to voice recordings. You know, it was a very complicated that we'd have, you know, production people to watch the budget and all that kind of stuff, you know. So, yeah, I mean, we had the, the director communicates with everybody on the staff, you know, so, you know, everybody knows what you're what you're trying to do and you know what everybody's doing. And um, it's great. It's a great because, you know, you get to work with some very talented people and, you know, they all have a, a stake in what you're doing. So as a director, I found it to be very rewarding because as an artist, a lot of times you try to do a lot of things yourself. But when you have a lot of really talented people with you, you can kind of back away and and, and delegate and let them take it, you know. And a lot of times they will take it a lot further than you might take it, you know. 
So as a director, it's really understanding how to get the very best out of the people that you have and work with them. You know, people have different skill sets. And uh, I think the real key to, to a director is being able to see where your strengths are, where the, the strengths in your crew is, and make sure people are being given jobs that excite them, but also will, uh, you know, give them an opportunity to show what they're capable of. And all of that's great. Yeah. And I think that connects a lot with just like good leadership principles, because I know that people who I've worked for in the past, the ones that I felt were the, the best leaders were the ones who did exactly what you're saying in terms of identifying everyone's skill set and figuring out, okay, what do we need to do? And how, how does each individual's skill set really match getting us there? And sometimes you get there in a different way because of that. And so it's cool to hear that that principle is applied to directing and, and animating, at least when you're directing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, you're always, um, you know, it's, I, I see it as a real plus to have a good crew. The, you know, directing was a new thing for me. You know, when I worked on Tasmania, you know, I had never directed before. It was just like being an animator, you know, when I got into animation, I hadn't done that before either, you know, so everything, you know, I was very lucky, actually, uh, very blessed to have the opportunities. But the knowledge that I had gained by the time I got to being a director did me good stead because I had been an animator because I had done storyboarding a little bit. I had a, a pretty good sense of how to to make these things work, you know, uh, and I, all of the people that I brought in, you know, they knew their jobs. It was it was interestingly fun, tricky, but it was it was good. And luckily, I had a good enough crew, and I handpicked them, but uh, they were good. I learned, you know. I mean, I think I've always been sympathetic to artists because being an artist myself, I know how you know, what's involved in the work. So it's fun for me. I enjoy what someone else will bring to this thing, and I look at that as a plus, you know. I, I did have to learn to kind of let go. I think that that was uh, maybe the biggest problem, biggest hurdle I had was letting go and letting other people do things. Because, you know, when your name, when your name is on it, when you're the director of, you know, you take a lot of responsibility for how this thing turns out. But the reality is a lot of times you're doing not doing as much hands on work, you know. I mean, you might be doing, you're probably doing a fair amount, but not as much, you know, because, you know, it's just too much. It's more than you, any, any one person can do. And so you do have to rely on your people. And that was, that was a little tricky for me at first, but I got the hang of it. And luckily because I had good people, you know, it wasn't that hard. And we're talking about the different, you know, the individuals who make a big project like this work because all of them together are creating it. Now, Animaniacs has a certain style to it, but then you're dealing with all these individual artists and then you're directing an episode, someone else is directing another episode. And how do you kind of maintain the spirit of the individual artist while also recognizing that there's like an established style to what you're doing that you kind of have to, like, I would imagine there's some confines to that as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I would read the script and I would get a, you know, get a, obviously a very clear picture of what the writer was after and what the producer wanted. And I'd have conversations with the producer and, or, and the writer. And, uh, and then, of course, I'd have my own take on it. You know, I mean, I would hope the script would entertain me, would make me laugh or whatever. 
because that would be my point of contact. Um, and then I would definitely look to see like, okay, how can I put my stamp on this? What are the things I'd want to emphasize? You know, where will I want to put the f- focus on? You know, you know, there, there's, you, you do that. It's just natural. Uh, I mean, there are were times when I literally sometimes would storyboard sections of a show because I knew very specifically how I wanted those sections to play. But in most cases, I usually walk my storyboard artist through it. I put a lot of res- responsibility on the storyboard artists that worked under me because they were my eyes. You know, they they were the ones that would visualize what I wanted to do. So I always made sure they understood very clearly what I was after. So I didn't just let them go off willy nilly, do whatever they want. It was more like I, I had an idea of where I wanted the story to go visually and I'd put that out there. And then I would, and then of course, obviously you still ultimately have to let them do it. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a very interesting methodology directing. It's not, <laughs> I think directing is really more about working with people, being a leader and, and, and protecting your artists too, making sure they have the time to do uh, the good work because all, all those things are a factor. It's less, it's, there's an aesthetic to it. Obviously there's a methodology to get the quality work, but at the same time you're dealing with people. So you kind of have to, you know, work with the people. How, how are they processing the material? How are, what kind of mood are they in? And, you know, has it been a rough week or whatever, you know, because all of these, you know, there's little things affect how people do their work. You know, if somebody's having a rough week or, you know, somebody died and they got to take some, you know, you know, you need to be sympathetic to that, you know, and, and I've learned that that was a very important thing. I, I took it very seriously to be uh, sympathetic to my artists and make sure that they were in a good place and then if they needed time off or something sometimes or whatever, you know, I would try to make sure that they were okay. And a lot of times I might jump in and, and fill in and in a place where, you know, somebody maybe wasn't able to, to be there or whatever, you know, or they were kind of going to be back. But, you know, so it was kind of like a give and take. I understood. I tried to make sure my crew understood that I cared about them, you know. Yeah. I mean, they, they everybody pulled their weight. It wasn't like they didn't. But at the same time, I think you kind of have to also be sympathetic. You know, one of the things that I see going on today, I mean, I'm retired now, but I see a lot of the studios seem to be pushing their people very hard uh, in production. And that's a mistake because all you end up doing is driving people away. You know, they'll, they'll work hard for a while, but if you burn them out, they'll just jump ship. Sometimes they'll jump ship in the middle. or go to another studio, you know, they'll, or, you know, or they just, there won't be any loyalty. And, um, you know, the, the, the industry was very different when I was a director, you know, we protected our people. There was a loyalty. You know, you, you let people work at a reasonable pace and, you know, and you also gave them, a, you know, a reasonable amount of work time. You know, it was like now people might work for three, four or five weeks or something, you know, and then they lay them off. You know, we guaranteed our people a season, you know, so it's like you're going to work 10 months, 12 months and a year, you know. Or maybe we would have three-year guarantee. The people can plan their future. You know, they, they're they not having to leave and, okay, where am I going to work? You know, in November, you know, they knew they had a job, you know. And people work very differently when they feel protected, when they feel like the studio cares about them. A very, very different kind of work. And Animaniacs would not have been as good of a show as it were if we were just beating everybody over the head on the schedule and, you know, we, and we had to get things done. I mean, it wasn't like it was, 
really super easy. It was a lot of hard work, but at the same time, there was a, it was reasonable. You know, we, we were able to do it (laughs) within the schedule and, and there was a, you know, some, some, you know, sometimes it'd be a little hard, but nothing like what I'm seeing today or what I'm hearing about today. So you mentioned that your favorite part of this was the storyboard artist bit. Is, is that right? Am I remembering right? Yeah, I, I liked doing the story because I realized as an animator, I was effect. I was really the most impressed by the total story. Yeah, but I like moving things. I like seeing it come to life, you know. But I realized that it wasn't just, you know, an animator can be captivated just by the scene itself, you know, just animating a scene. I was captivated by the story the total story, you know, how it affected me when I'd walk out of the theater, you know, how I felt when the film was over. And I realized that wasn't me as an animator, just thinking about the scenes and how good they were. It was the total story, how the character arced and, you know, how things developed and the plot structure, you know, I was interested in the whole story. So I realized that storyboarding then was better for me because that was the platform on which I could tell the story. And so did you try to concentrate the jobs that you were choosing based on availability on who, like which project needed storyboard artists, or were you just trying to take whatever work you could get? How did, how does that work in terms of earning the living in the animation industry, but also following what you like best about it? Well, you know, my training at Disney, I think really definitely showed me where I was in the grand scheme of things, as far as an animator was concerned there, you know, Disney, had you know ha- had and has uh the best animators in the world i came into the studio at a time when they were at the very peak don bluth and his people were there glenn Keane, randy cartwright all of the, the you know andreas all of the people who are still at the, in the top of the food chain of animators i came in and i trained under these people but i was an assistant animator i, I never made it to the level of animator I animated, and I, but that was at a time, the way they did it was when you were training, you know, they would occasionally let you animate something, especially if they felt you showed potential, which obviously I guess I showed quite a bit. And so I was always animating stuff. But in those days, they didn't give you credit for it, you know. But that was okay because it was kind of like, oh, this is great. I get to animate something and uh, it's going to be in the picture. So I animated in The Fox and the Hound, which was the first Disney film I did animation on Fox and the Hound and I did animation on the Mickey's Christmas Carol and I also did animation on um, The Black Cauldron but most of the work I did on those three films was also assistant work it was either doing uh, breakdowns or assistant in-betweens or that type of thing clean up that type of thing following up the animator so all of that was a part of training but you know they could see you could do a certain level of animation so they would let you animate but I I brought that up to say that in, a, in an environment like that, when you're, uh, you know, up against such a amazing talent, uh, I, I, then exactly that's what they are. It, you know, you just have to, you'd have to just stay there year after year until you get to a place where you get that shot to animate. I mean, to be an animator. And I left the studio at a time when I was kind of at the peak of what I was doing, but Uh, I left at a time when I had an opportunity to go somewhere else and just be an animator, you know, it was going to be given to me that and the the money. So I, that's why I left. I went to work for Richard Williams 
So anyway, so but so anyway, I did get to be an animator, but I went somewhere else to do it. Then when I came back to Disney, I kind of was had more respect. You know, they let me do storyboards and they let me do layouts and various things. You know, I, I by that time I was doing a lot more storyboarding, so that was kind of the big thing. But um, and I went somewhere else, and I and and that's fine, and I'm happy I did that because I kind of got into the position of animator and director and all that a lot quicker than I would have if I had just stayed at Disney. Now, you mentioned you retired from the animation industry, and I know that you've done teaching before. Are you still actively teaching, or is that something you've stepped away from as well? No, I'm still teaching now. Uh, I've taught at several different schools, yeah. And what is it that drew you to starting to teach? I'm assuming you're teaching some sort of artistry and maybe specifically animation. Can you talk a little bit about what you do there? Yeah, um, I was approached. I forget. I had a I, well, actually, I remember the very first teaching gig I got was at Otis College. A friend of mine was teaching a character design class there. He was going to be on a hiatus or something, and he wasn't able to teach, or or maybe he just wasn't going to be able to teach anymore. And he, he was in the middle of the semester, and they needed somebody quickly. He recommended me. I went over. They liked me, and they let me work. They let me teach. I ended up staying there for eight years. (laughs) It was great. I really enjoyed it. But I came in as a character design teacher, and that was a lot of fun. And then I eventually started teaching animation and storyboarding there. Uh, So I taught there, and then um, then I ended up teaching also at Laguna College. Uh, I recently taught at uh, the Channel Island School, taught also at the ROE Academy up in San Francisco. I taught. Currently, I'm teaching for a studio called a school called DigiPen, and I'm teaching online. And I've just been doing this for, I, I guess I've been teaching now for a little over 20 some years, but it's been very rewarding. I've met a lot of very, very talented young people who, of course, gone on to be great in the business themselves. So great honor, great opportunity. Every time I have someone on the show who's done teaching before, they always talk about that rewarding aspect and, you know, seeing people grow as artists and being able to positively affect someone's talent and career path and all these things. And so on the show, we we talk a lot about the reasons behind why we create. And so you already mentioned that with the teaching, but going back to animation, it's a competitive industry. And uh, you were talking about how much hard work it is, although how much fun it is too. What kept you in the industry for so long? Um, What did you like so much about it? Was it as rewarding as teaching was in different ways? Well, everything about what I've gotten to do here has been very rewarding for me. I mean, you know, if you do what you love, uh, you never get tired of it. (laughs) You know, I've been very blessed and fortunate to have a job that I really like. And, And teaching what I do is even more rewarding because now I get to pass on some knowledge to young folks and give them the same encouragement that others gave me. So I look at it as paying it forward to people. Um, and I do my own teaching, actually. I mean, I teach for a lot of schools, but I also have my own classes that I teach individually. So I tutor people, and they, they contact me, and I, I do online classes for people one-on-one, and that's fun. Yeah, I mean, I've worked in the business now for, it was, let's see, I started in 40, well, in 76. So, so I think it's been about 44, 45 years in the industry. And uh, it's just been great. You, you know, you just don't get tired of it. You know, it's not, it's not, and I'm in a business that I can do it for the rest of my life. You know, I mean, I could, 
I could be drawing up until I'm a hundred and something, you know, and I intend to, <laughs> I intend to do that because it's a great, you know, it's a great business. So yeah, I mean, when you get to do what you like to do, you never get tired of it, you know, and everything about it. I mean, like now I'm spending more time now doing my own stuff. You know, I'm coming, you know, I have my own ideas and I've had ideas for my own little films I'd want to make, um, you know, just, just personal films. I find that to be a lot of fun. And with all this new technology, I mean, it's like it's made it so easy to do your own animation. When I started in this business, I mean, you, you could do your own animated film, but there was a lot of work involved. And I, and I did a few, but it's a lot of work, you know, because you animate it and you get you draw you draw it on the paper and then you got to Xerox it and you got to paint it and you got to hire people to paint it. And you can do your backgrounds and you got to go to camera service to shoot, you know, just all these things. It'd take you forever, you know. Now you've got all these great digital programs, you know, you can animate and do the whole thing yourself, you know, and it's all done. So it's a very different world. And now as a retiree, you know, I sit down and I every day and I'm always kind of fiddling around doing stuff. I still, I mean, I'm teaching still, but I'm also doing my own stuff. And I actually um, also still work a little bit. Every now and then I do freelance work uh, for other people. I do animation for independent people who want to do stuff they don't have the big budgets you know but they'll come to me and i'll you know i'll do um short little animation promos for them you know so that's really fun because i could do everything i usually will hire somebody to help me like do backgrounds or something like that but i could do all the animation myself and paint it and everything it's very easy it's great and so that's how you know when someone is really into their craft is when they are retired in air quotes I'm putting up now, uh, <laughs> that they're still actively doing so many different things. It just really goes to show when you truly love doing something, it doesn't as much feel like work, but almost as something that you need to do and keep doing. And you have people who have this creative spirit who you know might have like a normal desk job or something like this, but at the same time they have to, you know, whether it's just at night doodle something or write a short story or paint something, there's just something in certain people. I think that they have to do something creative. So even when you're retiring, you're, you're still, you know, at it in some sort of way. That's cool. Yeah. It's just really nice. I, uh, Cause it was, you know, for me, it was, it was a little frustrating. Actually, the only real, I'd say really frustrating thing about it, all of the time I spent learning and, and developing as an artist was that I did have ideas for things that I wanted to do, but I had to work, you know, I mean, so, you know, you, you work an eight hour a day, 40 hour a week, you know, and you come home, you know, you're pretty tired, you know, in the beginning I was young and I had a lot of energy. So sometimes I'd come home and I would jump on my own stuff and work on it. But now that I'm retired, it's, I have all this time, you know, so now I, I can do things that, and now I have more, more under my belt. I have more skills. I have more experience. So now I can do more things than I could when I was in my 20s. I know more. I, I'm a better animator. I'm a better storyteller, you know. So all of that is great. And, you know, so when you get to this place, if you're still doing well as an artist and you're still performing, this is the best time when you finally are free now where you don't have to work or you work when you want to. Then you're completely free to do what you want. And you can bring all of that experience, you know, into it. And it's, it's wonderful. And so you've had all these great experiences. What would you recommend to creatives, either if they're aspiring animators or just creatives in general, how to pursue a creative career? 
the I would say the young folks today, you're very fortunate. You you have platforms in which you can do animated projects on your own now. Something that I didn't have when I was young, when I was in my twenties. If you wanted to make a an animated film or an animated short or anything like that, you could do it. The the uh, materials and the equipment was available, but it was very cumbersome. You know, you you would have to do you do the drawing and animation, then you'd have to have it Xeroxed or inked on cell. So you had to buy acetate. Then you'd have to go to the camera services to shoot it. And, you know, you'd have to hire a background artist to paint the back. You know, you just had all these things to do, uh, add sound, whatever. It was a very extensive process and very expensive. Um, You know, I had friends that would make films and I had done, done some myself. It would take years to make, even something that was a few minutes. But now um, you all have these great digital platforms that are out there. Some of them are very inexpensive. Some of them are free where you can do all the animation. You can clean it up. You can paint it. You can put sound on it, everything yourself. And it could only might only take you weeks or months to make something that's several minutes long. So I would say I think that it's better for young people. You know, sure, I would say go look for opportunities to work. Absolutely. I wouldn't shirk that. But at the same time, I would say, make your own short films, you know, put things up on YouTube. You know, you don't have to just work for a studio. In fact, I think for the most part, it's better for artists to express themselves uh, using these platforms, make films, put them on Instagram, put them on YouTube, put them on Vimeo, you know, wherever you can put them. Because Studios don't have a monopoly of content. And quite often, sometimes the companies will actually look for you to, you know, find the content. I actually had a a student in my class once that was approached by Netflix, by a Netflix executive. I don't know how things turned out. I remember telling her to to get a lawyer before she had a meeting. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it just goes to show that we're in a very different time, that I think you don't have to jump through the same hoops that we did. And I just say to the young people, take advantage of this. You, you're, you know, for most of you, they don't know what it's like because they've just been born into it. But trust me, you know, animation, because it's so labor intensive for the, for you to have this wonderful digital platforms, these digital platforms to animate on, I say, man, go for it, do your own stuff. And who knows? I mean, some, Nick, some exec might come looking for you, might knock on your door. You might not even have to get a job, you know, because who knows? I mean, you may have the next TV series. How do you know? Like I say, they don't have a monopoly on content and we're the artists. We're the ones that create this stuff. So I think it's important for us to value that and take advantage of whatever is available to us. And so I say, young people, do your own stuff. Go for it. Well, great. Uh, This has been such a fascinating conversation. Um, I think that's a great note to end on. Do you want to let our listeners know where, um, I guess you've been mentioning sort of different works that you've been involved with in the past, and you've mentioned different places that you've been teaching. Um, I don't know if if there's a place that people can look further. I guess you you have your IMDB page that would list all the specific projects that you've had. Uh, well, it's where you would see everything uh, kind of listed, uh, what I've done. But I mean, you can uh, you can go to my website. I have a few websites. Um, there's uh, robinsonsanimation.com you can go to, and um, you'll see some of my work there. If you do go to the IMDb page, most all of the things that are listed on there 
a lot of them are, you know, movies or TV shows that I'm sure you could find. I know the Animaniacs work that I've done is all on DVD, and you could probably find a lot of that. Same as the, the Tasmania stuff, same as the Pinky and the Brain, all, all of the shows that I directed on and created and worked on, the movies, you know, Fox and Hound, all those things are available. Uh, a lot of the Disney stuff probably won't have my name on it, the earlier things, because back then they didn't give everybody screen credit. But uh, some of the more recent things you will probably find my name on, like I was a layout and storyboard artist on the Tigger movie, for instance, and you would probably see my name on that. But there's a lot of there was a lot of Disney projects that I do have my name on. So, you know, I've worked for DreamWorks. I did work on their um, How to Train Your Dragon series. You know, so I, you, you'll be able to find my work all around. Um, you know, I am uh, working on some short things now. I do have some things in the works that I hope to eventually put out there that are my own personal projects. So I'm excited about that. Not ready to put anything up yet, but I do have some some things that are kind of in the works. So, uh, you know, I'll let you know as time develops uh, what those are. Thanks again. It was so great uh, having you on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cause of Craft. If you'd like to hear more about the animation industry, check out episode 11 with storyboard artist Eliana Morin. We discuss how to protect yourself from burnout and how to reinvent yourself as an artist. And for a conversation in a completely different industry, check out episode 19 with Rudy Manning. We discuss the power of curiosity and his work on creating marketing campaigns for Microsoft. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider sharing with a friend and leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Those two things really do help the show grow. And if you have feedback, suggestions, or guest recommendations, send an email to john at causeofcraft.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.